Pastor Xavier Reese and the story of the king who would be a servant. Rejected by the rulers, by the crowds, by the Romans, by the, by the disciples, all forsook him. He did not shirk back. Wholeheartedly committed for you and for me. The Jew and Gentiles would not esteem, value, or reckon him of any significance, but rather have contempt for him. Some things never change, do they? Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. A painful death on the cross, to be sure, but could it be a broken heart from rejection that was even more painful for the Son of God who came to earth? Pastor Xavier continues a message from the prophet Isaiah that paints a graphic picture of Jesus' agonizing death on the cross, as well as the equally painful rejection the Son of God endured on our behalf. Let's listen now to today's important study on simple truths. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning verses 13, all the way down to chapter 53, verse 12. The prophet Isaiah provides for us the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, from another vantage point, the suffering Messiah. Polycarp called this chapter the golden of the Old Testament evangelists. I see it as the climax to all the prophecies regarding the Messiah up to this point in the book of Isaiah. They all have been building up to this golden passage, the Holy of Holies. Here he pays a price for sin as we're going to see that, the loving Savior. Notice first, the servant in his coming would be crucified. He begins at the end. At the finished work, the cross, the identity of the servant is said to be my servant, the father who is the speaker here regarding his son as we've seen before. The perspective is from heaven, not from the earth. This is important. So often we look at what's going on in our life from our perspective and we say, Lord, what are you doing? Why would you allow this? How come this is going on? And we need to look at it from God's perspective because he looks down the line to eternity and he's preparing us for eternity. We're so concerned about the here and now that sometimes we're willing to forfeit eternity. So we have to get the heavenly perspective. The implication is that he would thoroughly accomplish the purposes of his coming. Now notice secondly in verse 14, the servant is in his coming would be disfigured. The many who would see the servant would be astonished at him. The reason for this appalling response is twofold. Notice, the master would be astonished at him due to his visage being so marred more than any man. The word visage refers to his face. Remember, Jesus was beaten by the religious rulers, by the soldiers. His beard was plucked out. He was covered with a sack and beat. He couldn't see the punches coming. He was put with a crown of thorns upon his head. He was going to be so abused and battered that he would be deformed beyond recognition as a man, literally human. They didn't say, who is that? They said, what is that? He was not recognized as a man. Notice thirdly in verse 15. The servant by his coming would provide the message of the gospel. The servant shall sprinkle many nations, it says in verse 15. Some have translated the word sprinkle to the word startle or leap or spring in response of the nations. 
Others have taken the word sprinkle to mean the purification of sin. So what he's talking about the sprinkling here is that he made provisions we're going to see for all the world. But many will come, not all. Because there must be a choice made. It's not an automatic thing. Notice in verse 15 still, the servant's selfless act in view of who he was will be an amazement. The kings that shut their mouth at him for that which had not been told them shall they see. So what took place is proclaimed all over the world. Everybody has an idea about Jesus. Everybody has their own understanding. But when they hear the gospel, they are amazed what they didn't know as they hear the gospel. Notice when you come to verse 1 through 3 of 53, the servant in his coming would be snubbed by man. The servant would be despised and rejected of man. The idea of looking on the servant with contempt and forsaken by man is as the savior of man. This includes more than the Jews. Rejected by the rulers, by the crowds, by the Romans, by the, by the disciples. All forsook him. In fact, the servant would be a man of sorrows, he says, acquainted with griefs. And the reference to sorrows means pains. He would be able to identify with all human misery. See, this is why the theology of today is, well, you know, it, 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 were you into drugs? I want somebody who's into drugs so they can minister to me. Listen, I don't need to know what you've gone through to minister to you. All I need to do is know my God. And I minister the word of God. God will comfort you. God will deal with your heart. When you get into a church or a philosophy from the scriptures that you need to hook up with someone who has been through what you have to understand, you are in deep trouble. My qualification to minister to you is that I know my God. And I know what he can do. And there's nothing impossible for him if your heart is open. The reference to acquainted with grief means sickness. For he would empathize and sympathize with all those who are sick. Hebrews 4, 15 to 18 is very, very clear. He's a merciful, compassionate high priest, able to meet our need. He meets our needs. We don't meet the needs that he meets. We're his extension. We're his witnesses. We're his vessels. But he's the one that does it. Notice the servant would not be responded to as the redeemer of man. The Jews and Gentiles hid their faces from him due to the horror of his appearance of disgust. In fact, the word is used for a leopard in Leviticus 13.45. The horror of leprosy turn away. The Jew and Gentiles would not esteem, value, or reckon him of any significance, but rather have contempt for him. Some things never change, do they? This is the proclamation of the servant's coming. Wholeheartedly committed for you and for me. He did not shirk back. Now you've got to assess that revelation, that proclamation. What are you going to do with it? Are you open to the conviction of the Spirit of God to see that you are one who he died for? Notice secondly here in verse 4 down to 9 of chapter 53. The revelation of his love. The prophet focuses in. First, in verse 4, the servant came knowing he would be misunderstood. The suffering of the servant was to bear our griefs 
and sorrows. Now, he repeats these words, but from a different context. The Hebrew word grief, as we said, means sicknesses, and sorrow means pain. The plural pronouns used by Isaiah are emphatic. Our. They were the sicknesses and pains of us, not his. This seems very clear. What happened to him happened because of us and for us. This is the focus of this section. The solution of these two things was that he not only bore them on his person, but he carried them. And the word in the Hebrew carry there means to take away and to carry away vicariously. So what he did, he did for me, but not only did he do it for me, but it affected me. It was just as if I had been the one to pay that price, and it is accounted to me now, vicariously. This is mentioned no less than 12 times in this chapter. And he did it for us, not for himself. He died in our place, not for himself. Now notice the suffering servant mistakenly was assumed to have deserved the affliction out of his own guilt. Yet we esteem him stricken, meaning that those who looked on Jesus on the cross reckoned and concluded that he was deserving of that pain. He said he deserves the pain, and he's up there because of what he did. And afflicted means that Jesus was humiliated, degraded, and humbled by God, not for others, but for his own shortcoming. This would be the mistaken notion of those who witnessed the crucifixion. But this is the mistaken notion still of people in every generation. Notice secondly in verse 5. The servant came knowing he would be punished on our behalf for our rebellions and self-will disobedience. He was bruised for our iniquity, meaning for our twisted and perverted crookedness. Kind of like Jeremiah, you know, our heart is evil, desperately wicked, 17.9. Notice the chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was chastened that the sinner might receive the benefit of reconciliation. He bore the sufferings in order that we may have the benefit, the peace with God. Romans 5.1, justification. Because all of us are enemies against God and we're fighting against God until we come to the Son. And so when we accept Him as Lord and Savior and we repent from our sins, now I have peace with God. And once I have peace with God, then I have access to the peace of God for the situations of life that passes all understanding. So I don't have to freak out and run around like a chicken with my head cut off. And notice, and by his stripes, we are healed. The meaning refers to the provisions to receive healing for our infirmities. The provision does not promise, guarantee, or teach that all can or will be healed automatically and every time. Because God is sovereign. For some of us, the best thing that can happen is the sickness. And God uses sickness sometimes to chasten us and to get our attention. Then other times, it's just a normal process of this fallen world, and God just lets it run its course. And then other times, we anoint people with oil, lay hands on them, pray, and God heals on sovereignty. 
He's sovereign. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he loves you more than somebody else or less than anybody else. He is sovereign. You are to commit yourself to him as a faithful creator in your sufferings, and so am I. 1 Peter 4.19. He knows what's best. How many of us who have walked with God for a long time do not look back upon our own history walking with God and we laugh and we sometimes just want to smack ourselves how dumb we were arguing with God as we see the wisdom. Because he has the eternal perspective in mind and I'm so caught up with here and now. I guess God doesn't love me. <laughs> Notice 30 in verse 6. The servant came to die for sinners. We all like sheep have gone astray. Sheep are used throughout the scriptures to reveal the senselessness of man's tendency to go astray from God. Sheep are not the smartest animals. Left alone, they're vulnerable to others and a danger to themselves. It's a good metaphor that is used for us. The servant died for those who had gone astray from God and self-will, yet God accounted Jesus as that one who would take it all. Everyone's iniquities were placed on him. What an amazing transaction. He says, here's my son. He's the epitome of holiness. Here you are, the epitome of muckness, sinfulness, corruptness. And I want to put all of his holiness on your account. And I'll put all your ugliness on his account. How does that sound? That's what he did. That's what the prophet's saying here. The phrase of us all means the masses, the entire world in general. The sin and guilt was accounted to Jesus. He walked to the cross from Caesarea Philippi. When Peter says, Art the Christ, Son of the living God, he walked towards Jerusalem. He mentioned his death was the resurrection every time. Never missed it. The Jews, the disciples who were Jews, did not understand it. There was no room for a suffering Messiah. They wanted a conquering Messiah. And notice thirdly in verse 7, the servant came in complete submission. The servant was oppressed and afflicted. The phrase means harshly treated and mishandled. And the father restrained himself because he loves us so much. And the son commended himself because he loves us so much. Man. In fact, the servant says here, you open not his mouth. He had nothing to defend. All was false, but all was according to God's plan for the redemption of man. He told Pilate, you have no power to release me or to crucify me. Does my father give it to you? To Herod, he said not a word because he wanted just a miracle. In fact, the servant was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers, silent, opening not his mouth. What a picture. The phrase as a lamb to the slaughter means to the altar of sacrifice. Every Jew was schooled in sacrifice. And when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, in John 1, 29, 36, every Jew saw an animal. They saw a man putting his hands on the animal, transferring the sins, taking a knife, cutting his throat, blood going all over, the animal schooling, falling to the ground, and knowing that innocent animal paid for my sin, that's what they got in their mind. They knew exactly what was taking place. And in spite of all that, they missed the Lamb of God. Some of you have missed the Lamb of God up to this day. You still have not recognized him as the one who died for you. God is giving you another chance as you hear the gospel once again. 
Notice fourthly here in verse 8 and 9. The servant came and was treated like a criminal. In verse 8, the servant was taken from prison and from judgment. He was not given the proper time between his accusation, his trial, his imprisonment, and his judgment, not to mention the crucifixion. The trial of Jesus was all illegal, from the religious trial to the political trial. The servant's injustice during that generation, who will declare them, the prophet says. In other words, God doesn't want this to be repeated. So as the gospel goes forth, as a reminder to people what they did to Jesus illegally, lest it should continue to happen again. The corruption of the religious rulers, the self-serving power of the Roman governor Pilate, the indifference and apathy taken towards the person of Jesus by the people, and the powers that were only were interested in the getting rid of him and not in finding truth. All of these are warnings to all who hear the gospel. Don't let this be your own crime. To be indifferent. To reason him away. To reject him, which is to crucify him all over again. To say he's guilty. He deserves it. That's why he went out there. He didn't go for me. And as the gospel goes forth, it's a warning to all. Lest this generation repeat the same failures of that which he died before. The servant was put to death in the prime of his life, the prophet says. He was cut off, executed violently and prematurely. He was done so, being innocent of any crime. He was executed in the place of God's people, he says. The servant was to have an honorable funeral, by the way, in verse 9. He would make his grave with the wicked. Jesus was crucified between two thieves on the cross who reviled him, and one repented in Matthew 27, 44, and so on. But he would be also buried with the rich at the end. The man Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus, and he provided a tomb for him, Matthew 27, 57 through 60. Pilate gave it to him. The grave had never been used, but Jesus only needed it for the weekend, so it was no big deal. <laughs> she says, you can have it back Sunday evening. The servant suffered all these things being innocent because he had done no violence because there was no deceit in his mouth. The prophet goes out of his way to make absolutely sure that whoever reads this passage knows that this man who died was God and that he died for others and not for himself. Heavy. He finishes off with the exaltation of his sufficiency. Verse 10 through 12. First, verse 10, the servant became a sin offering to God. This pleased the father to bruise him, to crush him, if you will, to put him to grief due to the fact that he made his soul an offering for sin, being a substitute for man, which we've seen in verse 4 through 6. 1 John 2, 2, the propitiation for our sins in the whole world. From the determinate counsel knowledge of God, Peter says in Acts 2.23, he crucified him. The Dead Sea Scrolls put it this way, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him and to pierce him. The Father was pleased with the accomplishment. Notice that. He would see his seed, referring to those who would be saved through the sacrifice. He had the eternal aspect in mind, not the immediate. He would prolong his days, referring to the resurrection. He would not remain dead. Death could not hold him, though Hades could not hold him, Peter says in Pentecost. 
The work of atonement was completed. Even as Jesus cried from the cross in John 1930, it is finished. No works, nothing. No money, nothing. Just faith in the work that he died in your place. The servant, by his knowledge, God's righteous servant would justify many. Many, for not all, would believe the gospel. The limitation is on man's part. Many, for not all, would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They would not repent of their sins. So it's through the knowledge, as people hear that Jesus died, that he was a sin offering, they are justified if they embrace it. The servant shall bear the iniquities of individuals who come to him. Their iniquities. This is the only person who can do that. This is the only reason for man being able to be saved. This is the only reason why man can have fellowship with God. Jesus suffered an unknown spiritual agony unlike any we will ever know. For a time he was separated from the Father in a way that we don't understand and cannot explain. But just a little preview, if you have a child two, three years old, you go to a department store that's maybe uh, 200,000 square feet underneath, and all of a sudden you turn around, your child's gone. That's a little glimpse, doesn't even come close to it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A couple of verses down, because you are holy. Well, yeah, it becomes sin for us. Notice third and last here in verse 12. The servant became the intercessor for sinners. Therefore the Father divided him a portion with the great, the great men who have power and authorities. Jesus is the greatest, the greatest man in the world. All will admire him. The servant would divide the spoil with the strong. The spoil refers to the plunder taken in the victory. Jesus said he spoiled principalities and powers, Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He descended to the lowest place and ascended up on high, Ephesians 4, 9 through 10 and 11. The reason given are four. Notice verse 12. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was committed to the cause of the Father. He despised the shame of the cross before the joy that was set before him. He endured it. Hebrews 12, 2. Totally committed. Because he was numbered with the transgressors. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. There's not one good. No, not one. Not even you. Romans 3, 10, 11. Because he bore the sins of many. To as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the children of God. John 1, 12. Whosoever will. John 3, 16. And lastly, because he made intercession for the intercessors. He is the only way, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father by me. He is the only name, Acts 4, 12. There's no other name given under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. He is the only one to be worshipped, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He has submitted himself unto the death of the cross, so a name has been given to him above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the only mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, not Mary, no saint, no nothing. Jesus. Mediator. You want to be one with God? You have to come through Jesus. It's like if I deposit $10,000 in your account. If you don't believe it, you'll never benefit from it. No, I really put, nah, get out of here. And you go on your life, you die. Money's in there because you did not believe and go check. Come and see, the disciple says. Come and see, I found the Messiah. <laughs> what do you got to lose? The only thing you got to lose is your sin and hell if you die. But it's your choice. This is the exaltation of his sufficiency. An amazing passage. 
The prophet Isaiah has provided for us the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, from the vantage point of the suffering Messiah. The proclamation of the servant's coming, the revelation of the servant's love, and the exaltation of the servant's sufficiency. Man, it's finished. All you need to do is come. Pastor Xavier Reese, bringing to a close an important message of the gift of life offered free to all who believe through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Today's message, titled The Suffering Servant of Jehovah, is available on CD for just $4. And if you weren't with us last time, you'll want to hear the study in its entirety, I'm sure. And as a matter of fact, there's even more material than our limited broadcast time allows us, so all the more reason to contact us for a copy. So once again, the title to ask for is The Suffering Servant of Jehovah, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's helpful when you mention the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us with our stewardship of this outreach. And don't forget to tell a friend and join us for more Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese next time right here. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 